Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about idolatry and identity. I've been thinking about consistency in thought and action and about the sanctity of truth. I've been thinking about the sometimes very subtle distinction between our thoughts, emotions, and the messages or internal promptings we receive from God. I've been thinking about the intense need to belong and the irony of the desperation we feel when we experience ourselves as other, as a stranger, seen, heard, and recognized by no one, while the entire time we are seen, heard, and recognized by the highest power in existence. And yet, we will turn away from that power, close our eyes, our ears, and hearts to act in a manner that goes against our nature, our mission, and the voice of God to try and fulfill our unique calling and true purpose. My guest today is Rob Schenk. He is the founding president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, dedicated to promoting ethical reflection and responsible action in public life and policy. His new memoir, Costly Grace, an evangelical minister's rediscovery of faith, hope, and love, shares with us his faith and his epic journey to do God's work and live an authentic, purposeful life. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Honored uh, to share in the conversation. So you save your current journey. My new journey is far more gratifying than a plane flight around the world or a 2,000-mile trek to Mexico or a confident stroll through the corridors of political power. My destination is clear. I'm on a journey to find the reality of God every day, day after day, in this moment, in whomever I encounter. Um, I want to start with what does it mean in in your words? Seek deeply and risk greatly to act courageously in obedience to the will of God as best we can, because that certainly seems like your current journey. Yeah, and it was actually what I thought in a way I was doing for 30 years of my life, but I was, in a way, I had fooled myself. I think sometimes we think we're risking something for God by maybe standing our ground on our, you know, core principles and convictions. But in fact, we're really not risking much at all because we're reinforcing ourselves and, you know, we feel better about ourselves when we do that kind of thing. But It's not really risky. What's risky is when you you look at yourself a little critically and wonder whether you're really right after all, and maybe others have an insight you don't have. That that's risk taking. And that's the place I am now in my life. I spent thirty years in what's you know, we we often call the religious right. And, you know, uh, there's no pun intended, but there's a lot of thinking about being right and doing right on that side uh, of the equation. For me, I think in being so convinced that I was right, I missed out on the many, many occasions when somebody called me out as wrong. And I, I, I didn't grow as a result of being self-critical. So in this stage of my life, took me 30 years to get here, uh, I, I look at myself a little more critically, and that's what feels risky to me. But the, the outcome is very much worth the risk. It's interesting. Two things you say is I, I'm wondering if we actually do feel better in, in the first example. Um, if our mind or our ego tells us we're doing the right thing. And so that feels better. But I'm wondering, and, and we'll dive more deeply into this, but if, if we really stopped for a moment and like paid attention to like, what is the feeling when we are actually doing something that we think think is the, as you say, the right thing, but, but it isn't in alignment with our true values or, or with the teachings of, of God and Jesus. Like, does that really feel good? You know, and and if we were really stopping long enough to pay attention to to how it feels, because there's got to be some internal disconnect, um, that, that we have to ignore in those situations. 
Well, that's a great point. And as you say that, I mean, one of the things I write about in Costly Grace is the quiet suffering, the quiet agony that I experienced when I would see something, I would have an encounter with somebody, I would watch how I was treating other people and how my colleagues and friends were treating other people. And I would have doubts about what we were doing. And it would take a lot of work to quiet that doubt, to put it aside, to push forward with, you know, whatever agenda, whatever uh, opinion, uh, whatever, you know, declaration we were making. And I was an activist. I was an activist in the uh, anti-abortion movement, specifically in Operation Rescue. We were blockading clinics. Uh, we were literally pushing against our opponents. And, and there were many moments when I, I wondered, are we right here? Are, are we giving enough consideration to the other person and their feelings and their fears? And, and so, but I, I would have to put that aside. It was not permitted in our movement to harbor those kinds of questions and doubts. So they, and it takes a lot of work, uh, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually to suppress those questions that arise in your conscience. So you're right. In a way, it's, it's not pleasant. And there had to be a justification, right? That, that somehow the ends justified the means, and this was for God, and you were doing God's work, and so that even if maybe it wasn't in the manner um, that, that Jesus may have gone about it, it, it was in the name of, and that somehow, were, were you aware of sort of justifying, or, or did you skip that step? Did you just leap to know this is what has to be done? No, I think, I think I worked through a process of justification, of, of self-justification. I had to, at times, literally convince myself of what I was doing, that I was doing right. Uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great, uh, wonderful uh, and brilliant young Lutheran pastor who was one of the first voices to oppose Adolf Hitler during the rise of Nazism in Germany would ultimately pay for that with his life uh, when he was murdered in a concentration camp. But uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great moral philosopher and theologian, maybe one of the finest in the last 150 years in the West, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when you read the Bible, you have to read it against yourself not as a justification for yourself, but as a challenge to yourself. And I have to say that during those years, I read the Bible mostly for self-justification. I would go there searching for a verse, for a passage that would justify my opinions, my behavior, my actions. I didn't really allow it and particularly the life and words of Jesus, to challenge me. Instead, I used them to justify myself. And I think that there's a great and painful lesson to be learned in that. It's a lot easier if we simply approach the text with self-doubt, asking, you know, am I really right? Do I need to change? And that, that's a much as you suggest, it's actually a much easier and more pleasant way to do it than to try to undo what you've worked so hard to justify in yourself. But terrifying too, right? Especially if we grew up in, in a home or are living in a state where we're just full of anxiety and uncertainty and not too secure in ourselves or maybe what what we are, who we are, why we're here, and we don't have a sense of, of clear identity and belonging and, and a sense of, of security in the world. Like, how scary then to, um, to compare what we learn and read um, 
to our to ourselves and question it. And, and I'm hoping that's what, what we're doing today and what the show does is that we get people thinking and questioning and questioning our, our motives and our beliefs and uh, beliefs and all that. So um, you certainly have done it and you've certainly done, done it with your book costly grace and you've done it with your life and and I want to talk a little bit just so the the listeners can can get a sense of what your odyssey has been like um your book chronicles your you say you're three but I, I think they're way more than three um I'm, it has to be five and maybe five, four maybe five um conversions you from Judaism to born-again Christian to radical activist um you might not uh, have have qualified it as that, but I'm going to. I hope that's okay. Um, Washington, okay. Washington elite to a return to your core values in alignment with the the teachings of Jesus, and and maybe we'll just start with what brought you to Jesus in in the first place. What were you looking for, and and what did you find? Yeah, well, I grew up in a um, uh, really uh, a nominal uh, Jewish home, nominally Jewish home. I had a Jewish cultural and even religious identity. But my family history was very complicated. My father was born Jewish. My mother converted to Judaism to marry him and to satisfy the demands of his family. They pledged to raise their children uh, in Judaism. And I grew up very much feeling Jewish. Uh, I had two sisters that came into the marriage uh, from my mother's previous marriage. So they had been raised Christian. My identical twin brother and I uh, were born to a Jewish father's, and we grew up uh, with Jewish identities. That set up a little bit of a tension of sorts in our family. Uh, we didn't really completely identify uh, with our sisters, uh, at least on a religious uh, level. But my parents lost interest uh, in formal religion, and we we all kind of drifted and didn't really have a moral or spiritual anchor in our lives. And by the time I was in my late teens, I, I really felt that alienation and, and disconnection. And I went searching, and my brother and I both met the son of a Methodist minister who invited us to his church. It was the first time I had heard really clearly about Jesus. And it came mostly from his Sermon on the Mount. So these beautiful words, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This was a very warm and inviting and welcoming message. And my brother and I responded to that. Uh, You know, we went forward as people typically think in a sort of, uh, it was a little more of a formal, but still kind of revival tent setting where you go up to the altar and you make your profession of faith. And I did that, brought that home. And it wasn't the most popular thing you can do in a Jewish family. It set up more conflict. But over time, uh, everybody came to live with that arrangement. My parents had said, you'll go out, make your own decisions about your life you know, search for your own values, uh, set your own course. I don't think they imagined we would do that religiously apart from the family's faith, but we did. And and that started my my Christian odyssey. I was in my late teens and and, uh, and I remain a Christian to this day. And and it was a, a huge decision, and, and clearly in that scene in the book, like you're debating and, and, and it seems like, you know, your Paul is is on the road, but you're kind of thinking about it more and, and judging it more. But it seemed in that moment, you did follow an internal prompting. It was like, Oh, I'm getting up, I'm going up there. And you said, but in that room, for the first time in my life, I knew a profound feeling of comfort and connection, as peace flowed like a river in my own restless, troubled adolescent soul. And when I thought, isn't that what we're all searching for, you know, a home, a family and answers to our spiritual hunger? Yes, it was very much a search for belonging. And even in this moment, uh, with all I've been through in the 40-plus year spiritual journey, I I still feel very warm about that experience. It was the welcome into a spiritual family, of which I still feel very much a part. And in a way, you know, it, it provided an anchor for me. 
in every way, uh, spiritually, because it, it gave me a, a deep and very personal faith that I shared with others, with a whole community. It gave me instant friendships that were more like family. And it gave me even a kind of um, social reference point. I mean, the church became the, the the center of my community life. So in every way, it, it became uh, an experience of belonging, of finding a place to be and people to be with. And that's a very important part of that kind of spiritual experience. I mean, I know people experience that in many different kinds of religious communities. For me, it was it was deep, it was profound, and it would prove to be lifelong. And yes, I think we're all searching for that kind of belonging. And I think it's important just to point out too, for you, how important friendship and community and connection and belonging is as you know, for the soul that you are like, that, that was so apparent throughout the book that that is, is a key element of, of this physical reality for you. It's important for you to to belong, and to feel that you're doing something that's purposeful and important. And, and having very an much, impact. Very much so. And that can work, you know, it's so powerful for me, and I think for a lot of people, that it, it, it was both positive and negative at the same time. It was very positive because it, it, it demonstrated to me how important the depth and even longevity of relationship is. I mean, you know, when you make this kind of profession of faith, you feel connected to an eternal family. I mean, this is something that's going to go on forever, even past this earthly physical life. Uh, but it also, uh, for me, it led to lifelong friendships that are very important to me. Um, a lifelong, I mean, you know, four decade marriage. I'm still married to the same girl I met in the youth group of that first church that I joined. Uh, Cheryl and I have been married for 41 years and still going strong. Not that we haven't had our ups and downs, lots of them, as in any relationship. Uh, and I chronicle that in Costly Grace. But still, it, it, it impressed on me the importance of long-term relationships, from the most intimate to really the most casual. I have friends that have been my friends for 40 years, and that goes back to that original time. And that's terribly important to me. And that's why change has been painful, because some of those relationships can't sustain significant change. And I've felt that. I've lost friendships in this process of change I've been through at this phase of my life. And that's part of why I entitled the book Costly Grace, because there's a, there's a grace in that, there's a, a gift in it, but at the same time, there's a price attached to change. And so you, you lose relationships as you change, uh, as much as in some cases you deepen them. That's part of the risk. So let's talk a little bit about the next conversion. So the diving into the anti-abortion movement. You initially saw your, your brother Paul's actions in the movement as, as kind of crazy and extreme, and you couldn't understand his willingness to risk everything that you all had worked so hard and built up for a fringe movement led by an unpredictable, you call an unpredictable marginal figure. Um, and then something happened, or things happened, and you started to slowly participate, you know, first in as a, an, an observer, but then pretty quickly jumping into the movement. Um, did it feel like, like you were keeping to God's path at, at that point? Yes, yes, it did. I mean, it at first, as you know, as as you point out, and in the book, I'm I'm careful to to uh, record, you know, m moments of doubt. Uh, I wasn't convinced at first, you know, that blockading, um, you know, sort of stealing yourself against others, particularly people who are vulnerable, 
um, as the women coming to those clinics were. They were clearly emotionally vulnerable. Uh, some of them were literally desperate. Uh, they were expressing desperation. And, and of course, we were physically blocking them from getting to a door. At, at first, that, that didn't feel comfortable to me. Then, of course, you know, uh, all of us rehearsed the history of the civil rights struggle, and we thought of ourselves uh, in the same vein that we were hunkering down like they did you know, uh, during the civil rights movement and locking arms, marching, uh, sitting in, you know, at the, at the counters, the restaurant counters and so on. And, and that, that assured us that, that even though this was a painful encounter, even confrontation, it, it needed to be done. And then that became a kind of belonging for me. And it wasn't all bad. Uh, there was some good work done during those times, but I was losing the, the power of reflection. A movement tends to eclipse moments of, of interior reflection, and I was losing that over time. And eventually I, I would become really, in a way, detached from the pain of the people on the other side of the police tape or outside the clinic uh, and opposite of us. I think that's such an important point that, that you bring up is that in those moments in the most heated maybe and exciting and powerful and in a way transformative moments of a movement that that can cloud and obscure your sense of self-reflection and maybe even your connection with your values and your sense of integrity and beliefs and that it it happens to all of us at, at different levels. Um, that we aren't always able to be conducting some comparison of our values and our integrity and, and our internal condition and, and figuring out whether or not it's a match. And that that's something for us all to sort of be conscious of um, when we think about our own actions and, and everyone else's as well. Yeah, and it's a delicate balance because we can't live our, our entire lives in self-doubt. Uh, we just can't. I mean, in order to properly take care of ourselves, take care of others, sometimes we have to act in confidence. Uh, Even if we may be wrong, we we do the best we can with the knowledge we have to act uh, in the best possible way, you know, that we can in that moment. And and so this is a very delicate balancing act. And one of the reasons I I borrowed the phrase costly grace from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which anyone who reads Bonhoeffer knows immediately, he coined that phrase, costly grace. Uh, and I borrowed that from Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer really dealt with this question of asking, what does God want from me in this moment? immediate moment. Uh, It's easy sometimes to go backward or even to project forward and say, what should I have done or what should I do? But to ask the question, am I doing what is right, what is good, what God wants in this moment, in this immediate moment of time? And of course, time is dynamic. It's constantly changing. So that answer Am I doing what is right, good, and what God wants may not be the same today as it was yesterday. And and we have to be open to that. Our relationship with God, just as our relationship with anyone else, is, is a dynamic one. It's not static. It's not locked into time and place. And it, it's part of part of the risk of living a spiritual life, I think is being open to what God may say to me now that will be different from what he said even a few moments ago. So do you think, though, one other element, that God, though, always wants one to do it in alignment with 
the principles that that match God's words, that that it matters, the manner matters, and the how matters. And I'm wondering if you look back um, to your years in the anti-abortion movement, but also your years as a minister, where maybe you were um, preaching one thing, and yet maybe not doing the same thing at home. Um, and I'm just thinking about when you talk about using birth control at home, that that you were using that at home, but then in the church you were saying, you know, people, you can't, you know, w- w- this is not allowed. And so, and I hate to feel like, I feel like I'm picking on you, and I, I in no means <laughs> mean to do that, because it's something we're all doing every day, and I think you're one of the bravest people I know to have written this book and mm-hmm. to have examined your life um, the way that you have, and taken the risks you have, especially considering what's been so important to you as a person and in your profession and and, um, as a reverend. So I I don't mean to pick on you, but I think it's so important um, to shine some light here as far as, you know, unconscious abandonment of our core principles, or even if we do it consciously at times and then justify it, that how this happens and and if it has to happen in your mind now do you look back and say i could have done you you know you couldn't have cuz you were where you were but but maybe one could do what what i did and achieve as much while acting in alignment with with integrity with with my principles yes of course of course and you know part of the part of the agony really of writing this book i mean i i hope i hope what people get out of this book is a positive message uh, you know to me it's redemptive to tell this kind of story and i wanted to write an a, a painfully honest story about myself not about other people you know it's a lot easier to expose other people than it is to expose yourself and I sat with that a long time. In fact, I don't mind admitting that when I first wrote this book, I wrote a, an entirely different book. I had a complete manuscript, and I sat with it, and I wasn't happy with it. I, but I did submit it to my editor, who said, Rob, this is a very nice story, but it's not one we're going to publish because it's not an honest story. There's another story here, a more honest one. And, and I, I already felt that. That's why he was kind of echoing my inner thoughts. And then I sat down and I knew it was going to take not just risk, but a lot of pain to produce a really honest telling of my own story. And it included the hypocrisy that you point out. And uh, I'm not offended because I had to go through that acceptance of myself and my own hypocrisy. And we all, I mean, you know, to be human is to be a hypocrite. And, you know, so we could all point, I'm sure, uh, to places in our lives. I wanted to go to the most intimate places of my life. I had to do that with the permission of others, because when we expose ourselves, we often expose others. And, you know, I had to ask Cheryl, my wife, I had to ask my, my adult children, are you comfortable with me telling this part of my story, which involves you? And it is a very personal family story that I tell in Costly Grace. And if anything, you know, if you have ideas that clergy have perfect families, I will spoil that <laughs> in Costly Grace because we are very human. And, uh, you know, when God chooses his servants, uh, they are human. And, and my story is a very human story. And, and I hope what people get out of it is real, a realization that we all share a common life as humans. It doesn't matter who we are, what, where we are, whether we're clergy or lay people, whether we're Easterners or Westerners, whether we are white as snow or, or people of fabulous color, uh, whether we're gay or straight. Uh, we have common human experiences, and I tried to bring that out out of my own uh, my own personal life. Well, I think you're very successful at doing so. Um, and I'm, this is Ellie Newman. That got me thinking. I'm speaking with 
Rob Shank about his book, Costly Grace, an Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love, um, which is certainly a guidebook, I think, for all of us reading it to, to do the same. Um, and so let's talk a little bit, because I'm thinking everything you just said um, that sounded so much in alignment with Christian faith um, are the things that you embraced later in your life and pretty much forced you to leave your position in the evangelical, um, I'll call it administration, but but top tier of, of that, the, the churches. And that brings one to pause. So let's talk a little bit about the current state of today's evangelical universe and, and sort of how you see it. And I'm calling it universe because there's another thing I noticed through the book is you continually say like my world, my universe. Um, and so I was wondering if, if, if you were consciously aware that of that at the time and if, if that aspect was something that you felt um, – was was good or okay or just how it was that somehow that world was a, a separate world? But first, yeah, the well, current I'm glad state. to bring it up. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I, I'm really glad you asked that question because I know, for example, the most uh, frequently asked question for me these days is: so what's what is it with you evangelicals? <laughs> like. Uh, you know, I live and I work in Washington, D.C., and I'm asked a lot, uh, you know, first of all, I don't get it. You know, the evangelical embrace of Donald Trump and populism and uh, the sort of, you know, hard right uh, political and social worldview. How, how does that comport with your faith? And one of the things I really wanted to do in Costly Grace was to explain to people who are not evangelical, uh, who are non-evangelicals, if you will, or or other than evangelical, uh, I wanted to explain the way we see the world. And in doing that, explain what can go right. For example, evangelicals are very generous people in giving to uh, philanthropy, uh, in uh, all kinds of humanitarian endeavors. I mean, evangelicals build a lot of hospitals, a lot of clinics, a lot of schools around the world. They help uh, the poor and the marginalized in very meaningful ways. Uh, so there can be a lot of good generated out of evangelical culture. Uh, at the same time, we can be very provincial, very narrow, very judgmental, very harsh. And I, I really wanted people who have not had experiences with evangelicals to understand how we see the world and how we relate even to what we perceive as threats to ourselves and to others. And, and so I take you through that process, through my own thinking, my own uh, way of being, how what I was reading, uh, the messages I was listening to during my formative period, why I came to embrace. For example, I went from casting my first presidential vote for Jimmy Carter because he was the born-again candidate. Uh, and as a Democrat, he cared about the poor, and we cared about the poor as evangelicals. So I supported Jimmy Carter. Later, I came to embrace Ronald Reagan for a very different set of reasons, which led to a feeling of social and political empowerment, which one could argue is antithetical to being meek and poor in spirit, which was the first message I heard from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So all of this, I think, in, in my telling of my own personal story, I hope helps to explain where evangelicals are today in their uh, political and social positions. So I wanted to write both to evangelicals with a message of, of challenge and change. And I wanted to write 
to people who are not evangelicals to help them understand even our worst behaviors and why we behave that way. And I, I hope I've told that as a critic first of myself uh, before I'm, I'm a critic of my own community, although I would call myself a loving voice of criticism for my own culture and my own universe, as, as you point out. Well, and I think the why matters so much because understanding the history and, and uh, um, that the, the evangelical sense of having been marginalized and disrespected and the resentment that may have been born there and then the growth, the um, incredible and quick growth of the evangelical churches and the fame of so many of the church leaders and and Jerry Faldwell and some of the others and the sort of rise to power and a connection then to political power with Reagan seems to have really sort of um been when when the tipping point occurred yes well and and all of that explains the phenomenon that we're watching today in american evangelicalism because for so long evangelicals were literally the people uh with the church on the other side of the tracks uh evangelicalism came out of the underclass if you go back a hundred plus years 100 120 years you see evangelicalism uh, emerging its most powerful streams out of the working class, the underclass, the uh, uneducated, uh, and and so on. Uh, there, there's a real sociological study uh, in the history of American evangelicalism, and there was sort of this uh, increasing uh, grievance against what is seen as, um, you know, the elitist culture in America, that it was the media that mocked us and derided us. It was uh, politicians who dismissed us as unimportant. And suddenly both discovered that we're really much more powerful than they at first imagined. And, and, Reagan helped us to flex our political muscle uh, as much as our social muscle. And, and once you start doing that, there's a certain, just like working out in a gym, you, you get a kind of high, a euphoria. And I, I chronicle that as well in Costly Grace, that as I moved on in positions of leadership within the evangelical uh, world, I felt more and more of that euphoria and the exhilaration that comes with recognition, social, political recognition, affirmation, the need by politicians to court us. I came here to Washington, D.C., and I, I struggled quietly with all of this, but in the end, that feeling of political and social power becomes irresistible. And, and that's what happened to me. Um, I became something of an addict. Uh, I became addicted to that. And once you gain access and, and influence and power, it's very difficult to retreat from that. And it would take a crisis in my life to precipitate a change. And, and that crisis came. Uh, in my own family life, in my marriage, uh, eventually uh, in a, a new encounter with Dietrich Bonhoeffer during a spiritual pilgrimage of his, following his life and work in Europe. And that would bring about what I identify, I think you're probably right, there, there's more than, there's constant conversions in my story, I think in all of our stories. But for me, there were three. You had some five very easily identifiable major shifts, though. <laughs> I should I should have had you as an editor. <laughs> I would have identified five, maybe more, maybe many more maybe conversions. More. We were that. subtle ones. Maybe we're steps in in the conversion, major steps. But yeah, in 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 my telling, you know, I decided okay, I'll 
I'll focus on three. And, and three is the magical, first. it's the magical number, Aspirin A. Brown. You got to have three, three pieces of go. here. Yeah. Um, so with this shift, kind of the, the latest shift and the, the epiphany of sorts, and then a real focus um, for, for transformation. And, and it comes with sort of a perfect storm. Um, you had things going on in your family life and, and Cheryl's story again, could be your own book. Um, I was thinking as I read and, and her braveness in, um, in really exploring different facets of herself and, and her growth within the evangelical, um, system but you you had mass shootings happen um you had some abortion providers who you knew personally doctors struck down um your brother twin brother paul's conversion to catholicism um cheryl and your personal growth you were focused on i I hate to always name trump in my interviews but it seemed to be unavoidable um trump the appearance of trump and then abby disney and um, the film that she asked you, a documentary, award-winning documentary, she asked you to participate in, The Armor of Light, seemed sort of a perfect storm for a spiritual crisis and, and, and for change. And, and certainly in the hero's journey, the, the moment that you, you know, decide that, that you're going to do this film with her, then we had to back up a little bit. It was a perfect Disney story because then you say, well, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to like make sure I say it, everything on, on, on camera in a way that I can disavow later. And I was like, oh, no, no. But you rise again, um, and and as you did with writing your book, you know, which is understandable. What what a terrifying place of vulnerability um, to put yourself in, and what a huge leap to to be willing to take. So so you again are a very brave person. What was it that once you you met Abby and she talked to you about doing this film? Um, had you just at that point sort of been so aware of areas of not living alignment with your your true values um, that that with your work with revisiting Bonhoeffer that you kind of were in a and had enough strength and, and gumption and courage built up to, to take that leap because you knew you were well aware of what it was going to cost you in, in all regards as far as your friendships and your place in the evangelical um, church and uh, a lot of relationships and your, your position in DC. Yeah. Well, what Abby did and, and Abby's a very interesting study in herself. In fact, uh, I just want to say as, as an aside here that women and very strong women play a very important role in my whole saga. Uh, you pointed out, I dedicate the book to Cheryl, my wife, my best friend, uh, more than that, my best advisor. Uh, I, I dedicate the book to Cheryl because she really is at the core of all of this. She, it was her strength that helped me successfully get through these very uh, significant transitions in my life and, and was always a check on me. Even when I did my best to kind of contain and control her in a patriarchal male-dominated system, uh, that was relatively easy to do because even she doubted her, her place and role in all of that. So it would have been very easy for me to kind of squash her voice. And yet she, she is such a strong person in, internally that, that, that ultimately was unsuccessful. <laughs> her voice kept speaking to me and, and helping me in, in very significant ways. I didn't always thank her for that. Uh, in fact, uh, I did quite the opposite. And it, it's, it says a lot about her that she remained with me through the worst of times. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful and I will never be able to say enough thanks to my own life partner uh, for that. But there are other women who play important roles in my story. And Abby Disney 
was one of them. And Abby, at the time I met her, had been away from any religious association for uh, the majority of her life. She had left the Catholic Church at age 18, had never returned to any uh, religious affiliation. But she was kind of on her own spiritual quest that she would have to articulate for herself. But it was just at that, at the right moment that I was, that she came to me and asked if I would uh, help her in her film to look at the evangelical embrace of popular gun culture in America. We are the most likely uh, subgroup within uh, the American population to embrace unfettered gun rights and including uh, being the religious group that has uh, the most access to firearms, either owning them or having access to them and, and uh, embracing the sort of popular gun culture that's promoted by the NRA and gun owners of America and other groups. And she, she thought that conflicted with our core values. Uh, and, you know, she wanted me to examine that and, that was a very difficult thing for me because while I was the gun aficionado at the same time, I sort of accepted the full package of socially conservative principles, which include uh, an embrace of unfettered, unqualified second amendment gun rights. And I knew to, to examine that would be to question it and to question it was almost to question a core doctrine of American evangelicalism. And, and I, I had my doubts about our position. I had seen the terrible effects of uh, the proliferation of guns in our society. I saw it up close uh, when supporters of ours from Lancaster, Pennsylvania were personally connected to the families that lost five Amish girls in a schoolhouse in rural Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And I went there and I visited with the Amish families and I watched them bury their children, literally uh, prepare their children for burial. And that was very shocking to me. And it was an evangelical who perpetrated that crime and killed those young girls. And that was very jarring to me. So eventually I did say yes, as you point out with some caveats, for Abby. And, but it was the experience with Abby herself. She helped me to rediscover doubt as a spiritual exercise in and of itself, self-doubt. And, and that was a great gift to me. So Abby played a key role in helping me into my my what I identify as my third conversion and a new place, which necessitated my leaving my old place. And that meant leaving an organization that I had spent 30 years building, a universe of 225,000 supporters spread all across the United States, um, leaving a position here in Washington, D.C. that gave me access to the highest uh, offices in the land and a lot of influence here, I would have to leave all those things, which I have done. And, but in leaving, I've discovered a whole new and much larger universe of people that is far more welcoming, much more inviting than my old world. So I lost a lot, but I'd like to think I've gained even more in the process. And and are you involved still with, you, you talk about sort of a distinction within the evangelical um, universe, with the younger evangelicals, that there really is a, a difference in their um, approach and, and sensibilities. And, um, and I, I want to talk 
about two things in our, our last few minutes. So I'm going to throw them out there now and then we'll figure out how we're going to talk about them. But one is ambition um, and what your current relationship is with it. On, on the book Jacket of Costly Grace, it says, Today you work to liberate the evangelical community from the oppression of a politicized gospel and to urge partisan conservatives to move beyond social battles and forsake the politics of hate, fear, and violence. <laughs> sort of off the cuff, like, how's that going? Um, but the, that's a very ambitious... Uh, undertaking, and you're an ambitious person, and and being ambitious is 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 a good thing um, when it's done in, in the right way. And I hope you have have come to to accept that well that that that, that being ambitious isn't isn't the the fault, um, and that we are all rooting for you, and hope you are very ambitious in in accomplishing what you're setting out to do right now. Um, but I want to just draw out a little bit about what you're up against. Um, through your work with Bonhoeffer, you realize the similarities of German evangelical churches of the 1930s and what the American evangelical church or parts of it have become today with the strong connection with um, politics. And you say the problem is where they are deriving their value system, not from the Bible, historical Christian teachings, or evangelical doctrine, but from the pronouncements of political personalities in a particular political party. And then there's a lot of justifying going on because everyone accepted Trump because, well, at least he doesn't drink. Um, so we can all rally around that. Um, and we'll just sort of ignore all the other bits. And you had, I think, what was probably a very impactful experience when you went to Houston, Texas. It wasn't popular, um, but you approached the negotiation with the mayor there about HERO was going to be very detrimental if it kept going the road down the road it was to to all pastors. And you approached it with collaborative problem solving, which was not only not popular choice, um, but it wasn't what you were used to because the the kind of approach of this group prior had been using and, and still is in the majority of the factions using fear and anger to galvanize constituents raise money and score political points like that was how the game was played so at that point you were still in the game but you were playing it in this other way um, is that still the approach um, you're taking and um We'll start there. Is that still the we'll see anything left after? But is that still sort of your your mindset as far as um, you you haven't sort of just completely turned away and joined this new group? Um, you still really are working to help bring the other group along with you into this new space. Very much so. First, I really love my evangelical folks. Uh, I still identify as an evangelical. I think I will always be an evangelical. The word itself from the Greek Evangelion means good news. And I, uh, you know, I want to continue to bear good news to the world, to humanity, uh, to the people in my own community, as well as outside my community. So I, I very much still love the people I've been connected to, uh, even when our relationship has become, you know, fraught with uh, tension and and uh, problems uh, as a result of this change in my own life and change in perspective, I see a lot of good that is done by evangelicals. So I I had considered leaving evangelicalism and going somewhere else. But in the end, I, I couldn't. It, it was like leaving family. It is very much a family. And I, I want to do them good as well. So this has been an invitation. I tried to do that in Houston, as you refer. That was a, an encounter with uh, then Mayor Anise Parker, who was, I think, the first openly gay mayor of a major city in America. Um, she certainly was, at least in Houston's history. And, uh, you know, there was this conflict with churches because uh, in the fight over this, what really was an anti-gay measure, uh, the mayor had subpoenaed the sermon notes of pastors. I thought that was violative of the sacred relationship between a pastor and a parishioner. And I wanted to appeal to her on that basis. At the same time, I was not interested in joining the combat with 
the LGBTQ community in Houston, nor with that mayor. I simply wanted to appeal on the basis of conscience and that that was of interest to the full spectrum of religious communities uh, in, in, in Houston. And I did that, but I was lambasted for it. Incidentally, it was successful. And you read that in my chapter in Costly Grace about this whole encounter in Houston, which was a wonderful one. But in the end, I was taken to task by my own fellow evangelical pastors who upbraided me, who castigated me, who uh, in fact demanded that I literally go to the airport, get on the next plane and get out of town. They were so angry that I had resolved the conflict. They wanted the conflict to continue because it would help them ultimately to defeat Mayor Parker in the next election. I didn't think that was in our best interest as evangelicals in Houston or anywhere else uh, in the world. And so I appealed on a different basis. I'm still using that approach. I, I, I did my best to honor and respect my fellow evangelical pastors in Houston. That was not reciprocated. But in the end, I thought this is the right and good thing to do in this moment of time. And I continue to believe that and, and will continue to do that. And yes, you're right. It's an ambitious mission to reform American evangelicalism. I hope Costly Grace is a little seed, a, a starter seed for that change. And I will probably give the rest of my life to that effort. I'm, uh, you know, I'm no longer as impressed with myself as I used to be, so I'm not sure how successful I've been or will be, but I want to do my part because I think that would be in the best interest of the next generation of evangelicals. Evangelicalism isn't going to go away in America. It's here for a long time. I'd like to see it play a more salutary, beneficial, positive role in our culture, and I think ultimately. It can. Well, I'm impressed, and I'm wondering how we, evangelical or not, can can help move us from us and them to the we. And um, as Jesus did, fully affirm the humanity of of everyone we encounter. And reading your book, I know, has bolstered me along that way in many areas. And and one being, I, I before we end, I want to apologize to you, because I realize, as I read that you were the man that carries that huge wooden cross um, in Ooh. Washington, D.C., that, you know, I saw that picture and thought, who's that crazy guy? And so I, I first want to offer my apology, uh, because now I understand who that crazy guy is and why that guy is carrying that cross every year in Washington, D.C. And so, first step, read your book, uh, Rob Shank, Costly Grace, An Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love. And then second step, uh, maybe you can just in this last moment tell us about the Bonhoeffer Institute and how one can participate and support it. Well, first by visiting tdbi.org. It stands for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, uh, tdbi.org. And you can see what we're doing. One of the things we're doing, I think is most important, is fostering uh, a culture, providing a forum for us to listen to each other, honor one another, even when we vehemently disagree with each other, and then to talk after listening, to talk to each other. And in talking, uh, we hope it will be reciprocated. The listening will be reciprocated. So listening and talking is very important. If you look at Jesus, he did a lot of listening and talking. And in, in doing so, we honor and we respect one another. That's the starting place. And of course, we learn that from God who listens and talks to us. And so I hope through the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, we can take that uh, from the life of Bonhoeffer, who lived in the terrible cauldron of human disaster that was World War II and, and the Nazification of Germany and the church in Germany. And yet out of that, he brought a beautiful message that even today is helping the world to heal from that disaster and, and others. 
So we're, we're doing all of that with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But yes, I wrote the book as a starting place for all of that, as an example for my own life. So maybe start with the book and then join us in our mission at tdbi.org. All right, well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. And uh, it was a real pleasure speaking with you and reading the book. And you definitely got me thinking. Thank you. I'm honored by that. Thank you. We got to work hard. Yeah. Well, what a lovely to discover you. Thank you for inviting me with costly grace. I mean, there's uh, thousands of books you could have done. Thank you for that. And and I let's. I, I listened to that talking. internal prompting because when I first got the query, oh, I had wow. kind of set it aside and I saw it again and I thought, no, it was such a clear, nope, you got to do this one. So I'm so glad I listened. Well, it's very humbling. All right. All right. Thank you we'll, for we'll that. We'll connect soon. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Thank okay. you. Bye. Bye-bye.